0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to the online
2: crowd. It's good to see everybody. So, the last time I gave a Dharma Talk, which was three weeks ago, during the last all-day sitting, some of you may have been here and remember, Um, that it was about a teaching of the Buddhas called the Five Remembrances. So, you know, these are the direct words of the Buddha in our tradition. We say they're the direct words. Nothing was written down at first, but sounds pretty authentic to me. Buddha encouraged his followers, that's us, (laughs) to keep in mind these five, sometimes they're called five contemplations. So I'm just going to say them again. The first is, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old, unless you die young. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death, although we keep trying. (laughs) All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And then the fifth is, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. So any of those five could be the subject of a talk, (laughs) especially the fifth one, the karma part. But it's the third one that is on my mind today uh, because the day after that sitting the next morning my mother died not unexpectedly of old age, really an old age, various causes but the basic one was, you know, she was a couple of months from turning ninety-six so we'll call it old age and uh, three days after the sitting and the talk I went home, still feels like home, to New York State where I grew up, and the town where I grew up, and my family lived for over 60 years, and we held the wake and a Catholic funeral and burial. So it was like time travel as well, to go back there and be back in a Catholic church, and all the words came back, I have to say, I grew (laughs) up Catholic. They were all right there. (laughs) I sometimes can't remember my own zip code, you know, and
1: yet it
2: all came back. (laughs) And then, you know, saw a lot of family that I haven't seen since before pandemic and even before that. So that's, that's what the last couple of weeks have been for me. So it kind of seemed natural to me to turn to a story for today that's very on point when thinking of this third remembrance, actually all of them to grow old, to have ill health, although this particular one person, my mother, was in great health. <laughs> she was physically very strong, right up to the end. You know, no chronic disease, no cancer, no heart disease, nothing. Just She just kind of wore out mm-hmm. body and mind. But it's the third one, I'm, the nature, I'm of the nature to die and there is no way to escape death. So this story that I'm going to tell you in a moment is one of my favorite teaching stories. It's a koan. Some of you are familiar with that term. koan is basically a public case. That's what the word means, a public case. It's a, and they're collected in uh, various collections that were made at different times with comments from various teachers added. And they're the stories of encounters often between teachers and students, sometimes between two students of the same teacher or people who are practicing together, and sometimes it's a monk and her direct experience that are meeting (laughs) directly. And they all take place in ancient China. So the particular collection that this one is drawn from, it's 100 stories. Uh, It's called The Blue Cliff Record, and it's case number 55, so if you want to look it up, and read the commentaries. You can go there. It's on. They're all online, with, in various translations. So there's quite a bit that you could consult if this or any other koan captures you. This particular koan is also included by our original Japanese teacher, our found the founder of our Soto Zen tradition, whose name is Dogen Zenji, and he compiled a collection of 300 koans, right? And this one is one of them. So these are 300. It's one of the 300 that that Dogen brought back from China, considered very fundamental. And the teacher, so this is a teacher-student story, and the teacher in this story is called Dao Wu. Chinese name is Dao Wu. In Japanese, he's known as Dogo, but I'm going to call him Dao Wu. He is very important in our tradition. He's a Dharma brother of Yunyan another really prominent Chinese Zen teacher known as Ungan in Japanese. And Ungan, in turn, is the teacher of Dongshan, or Tozan in Japanese. And Tozan was like one of the direct founders of Soto Zen, our school. He's one of our direct ancestors. So that's a little bit of the setting. And I'm going to read the most straightforward version of this story without any of the commentary. And it takes place in the ninth century, right? Universe, galaxy, what is it, long ago and far away, right? <laughs> ninth century, so 700 or so years ago. So listen. So Dao Wu, the teacher, and his student attendant, Zhang Yuan, went to a house, to some layperson's house, an ordinary person's home, to offer their condolences after someone in the household died. So just as a quick aside, apparently at this point, generally speaking, there were no Buddhist funerals for lay people. It was not sort of one of the things that was done, but instead the local temple abbot or head priest would go and offer something to the family in their home. So you know, the wake is at home. So the attendant strikes the coffin, the wooden coffin, with his. Hand and says, alive or dead? And Dao says, his teacher says, I'm not saying alive and I'm not saying dead. Or more simply, uh, he, he could say, I won't say. Right. He refuses to answer directly. And the student, Zhuan Yuan, says, Why won't you say? <laughs> and Dao said, I'm not saying, I am not saying. So they leave.
1: And on the way home,
2: the student stops in the middle of the road, they're on foot, right in the middle of the road, and says, tell me right now, teacher, if you don't say, I'm going to hit you and leave. And Dao says, you can hit me, but even if you do, I still won't say. And indeed, Zhang Wan hit him. They really practiced Zen back in the <laughs> <laughs> So, after Dao Wu died, sometime after he died, this student, Xian Wan, went to his successor, to his teacher's successor, named Shishuang, and he told him the story. And this may be as much as 30 years after this event. And Shishuang said, I'm not saying alive, and I'm not saying dead. So they replay this dialogue and Ron says, why won't you say? And Shishuang says, I'm not saying, I'm not saying. And this time, Xian Yuan had an insight. Right? He woke up to something. He understood something. Okay, so that's the basic story. Sojin, Mel Weitzman, who is our Dharma grandfather here at this temple, and my first teacher's teacher, gave a talk about this koan, I found out, exactly two months before he died. He died about two years ago. So Sojin talked about this while he was dying. He knew he was dying. Everyone in his temple knew he was dying. Everybody in the 10 directions knew he was dying. And in the talk, Sojun says, and a quote, I call this an old warhorse." this story. He says, we dragged out the old warhorse." and mount up again. We actually can't discuss it too many times because it may be our most important koan." That's a big statement coming from Sojin. And I don't think it was just because he was dying. And I think Sojin said this because the question of birth and death, right, our apparent coming into existence and leaving it, is a central question for all of us, for all human beings, it's a question of all religions, and Buddhism, for Buddhism, it's also a central question, whether you consider Buddhism a religion or not. Some people don't want to consider Buddhism a religion. The question is, where do we come from? Why? Why do we appear at all? What is the purpose of our life? What are we doing here? <laughs> and the age-old question, what happens after we die? I, so a monk knocks on the coffin. It's kind of rude, huh? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine this, right? I think if I were the bereaved family, I would say, you know, take, take your Zen drama and <laughs> down the road, would you please? Anyway, it's pretty intense what he did, or even desperate. And a number of the teachers who comment on this koan kind of point to how desperate this action was to, to act like this and then not even to get home, but like halfway home to stop the teacher and say, to be so desperate that you would say, I'm going to hit you <laughs> if you won't say. And that's a big no-no, right? In, in uh, Well, it's a no-no to hit people. But there are stories about you know, teachers striking students and sometimes students striking back, but in general, this is not done. right? So he's so desperate he would even hit his teacher. He is driven to violence by his need to understand. And I actually did think of this koan when I was standing next to my mother's open coffin and I looked at her. And I thought to myself, this is an effigy. you know. It's a representation, a kind of fake, this body in the coffin. You know, it was the best effort of undertakers to render her The way the photographs that we, the family, supplied showed her, right, in the clothes that she liked to wear, with jewelry to match, which is just the way she liked to present herself. Everything was carefully, until the end, everything was carefully uh, selected. And you know, people say funny things at Wakes. Um, Sometimes they say, oh, don't they look good? (laughs) Right? Because, you know, you approach a coffin and know someone has died, especially after, you know, a long illness or at an advanced age, and you really don't know what you're going to see. Oh, don't they look good? Thank God they look good. (laughs) But it wasn't her. And standing next to her, you know, I touched her. And I was mildly surprised, despite myself, when she didn't open her eyes and she didn't turn towards me. You know, she didn't respond at all. And it reminded me of another story that's sometimes quoted in conjunction with this one, the one that I just read, and it's about seven sisters, seven sisters who are wise sisters, they're actually sages, and they go on holiday, they're going to go on a vacation, and at the suggestion of one of them, they go to a forest of corpses, (laughs) a charnel ground, right, in ancient India, where people are exposed or partly exposed, they're, the bodies are burned and they're not fully consumed and so, you know, it's kind of a mess, right? And it's frightening. And one sister, the one who says, let's go to the charter ground for vacation, says, the corpse is here, but where is the person? And the eldest sister in the of the seven says, what? What? And they all experience enlightenment. Would that it was so easy. <clears throat> And um, Zen teacher Daido Luri, who is uh, deceased now, but was for a long time the abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery in New York, also refers to this story in conjunction with the koan that we're looking at. And he asks, what is going on here? Right? Is it the same point or a different point than the one being made by Dao Wu or by Shishuang? Right? I won't say. <laughs> they say, I won't say. Sister says, the corpse is here, but where is the person? You know, is, it, is it that the student is, con- is actually confused about whether someone is literally dead or alive? Is that really what's happening? So what do you think the monk is asking? You know, is he confused about whether the person is dead? What is his question? And, and as a person who's following the Buddhist way, how do you receive Dao Wu's response?
0: Yeah. Uh, to to me, the thing that comes up right here, the question, dead or alive, and him desperately pounding on the coffin, it's like, is any of this like kind of worth it, like being alive, and or is it just pointless, pointlessly dying and being buried someday? Like, is there any actual life, or is it just like death?
2: <laughs> okay, is it all just death? <laughs> <laughs> What's, is it pointless, right? We are only, we're born only to die.
1: Right.
2: Basic question, right? Yeah, anyone else? Yeah? Crystal. I
3: think also that we all know we're going to die, and we all know there's death that happens on a daily basis, but we don't really fully understand until we're in front of it. And it, like you being a little surprised that your mom didn't open her eyes, just kind of... Not quite grasping the
2: reality of it. Yeah. There's that. It's like we can, we can accept it for other people. Sometimes it's it, we feel grief, but it's like, oh, it's not me, not yet, right? Maybe we think, maybe I'm not gonna die. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
4: Anna.
2: Uh, to is, oh. So, oh, Anna and then yeah, go ahead, Ann. I, I saw you first. Oh, so, okay. Go ahead.
4: Um, it's about. Is this what's reality? What's I reality? Think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's seems like what he wants to know, like, people appear and then disappear, like that's not real like, and it doesn't seem like,
2: I don't know. Yeah, and sometimes there's this, you know, teaching that it's all appearances, mm-hmm. but like, you know, they seem pretty real to us. Yeah. yeah. Where do they go? Where do they go? Like, they like, there's, <laughs> a, there's another story about wild ducks. Do you know the story about the wild ducks? Mm. Another teacher and a student, are, they're walking along and these wild ducks fly. They, they start up and they fly out, and the teacher says to the student, what, what, what were those? What is that? And he says, they're wild ducks. You know, like, What else are they? What else could they be? And the says, teacher says to the student, where did they go? And the student said, well, they, they flew away. You know, like, the student's like, what are you trying to get from me? And the teacher comes up and grabs the student by the nose and gives it a tweak. It's an Ow! <laughs> like that's the response and the student then realizes what the teacher's getting at so these things are all connected right? where did they go they flew away Well, they, they haven't gone anywhere actually right? that's kind of the point they're right here and the way that he got them to see that is like the most immediate thing that we have is the stimulus of pain right <laughs> you moron they're right here yeah Other? Uh, yes and then Rich uh, I think and part of it is just not having these fixed views and these, uh, like, uh, making these hard distinctions about what is life, what is death, maybe a contemplation around where, where is the beginning, where is the end, and the nature of transformation. So I think it, it goes actually to one of the other remembrances, which is everything changes, right? Everything changes. So, it appears that there's birth, and it appears that there, there's death, and actually, it's a big transformation. One more to say about that in a minute? Rich, did you want to add something?
3: Yeah. Well, your, your question was what what was the monk's or the student's response to this teacher, and one the, the, part of the response that jumps out at me is that he struck him, and I've heard that anger is a is a mask for fear, and so this is a very natural kind of customary response to death is fear and like why? What is this? You know? I mean I think that's and it's not sort of an intellectual response. It's more like a gut response like, why? Why is this? And I'm afraid. I don't I don't want this for myself. Or I don't want to you know,
1: you know what I
2: mean? I think also the the um he was unafraid to strike the coffin. Right? There are all sorts of stories about people being buried alive, you know, it's like that's... <laughs> and he was unafraid of the consequences of hitting his teacher. Right? There were consequences. One version of this story is that he had, he had, to, he had to leave. Right? He had to leave. And it wasn't until 30 years later that with this same question, you know, recapitulated, he was able to understand. So it's a long time to be wandering in the wilderness, you know, of, like, not understanding birth and death. It's a long time.
3: It doesn't it seem like a lot of the suffering that we have is a reaction to the fear of death and sometimes? sometimes like, you know, we're yeah. trying to keep it at bay, trying to push it away or pretend like it's not, it's not there? Or...
2: Yes, and I think also the teacher's response to him was one of great compassion, right? Not to give him an answer despite getting hit, there's one version of this that, the, that would, he really got beat up by his student, like he was, and he died soon thereafter. Not necessarily cause and effect, but... Right? So the, this, this is a hinge, this whole question around which the lives of the, this teacher and this student and then the next generation turned, and it's the hinge of our lives, it's the pivot all of our lives. So, just to resume, I think the attending monk is driven by, you know, the question. He asked alive or dead, actually. He said alive or dead, and I turned it around since we're in Texas, right? So dead or alive. Um, (laughs) But there's another phrasing for this koan, and it lands a little differently, I think, when we hear it this way, which is, is this life or is this death? Which is a little different than saying, you know, it's like, is this thing alive or dead? We kind of say, well, kind of, it's kind of obvious that he's dead. Right? It was kind of obvious to me that my mother was dead. But what is death? right? What is this? So here again is what Daido says in his commentary on this koan. He says about Wu the teacher. He says, Wu said, I won't say. He didn't say, I can't say. He didn't say, I don't know. He didn't say go away. <laughs> he didn't say I forgot. He said I won't say. What was he pointing to? asks Dido. Clearly the attendant truly needed to know the answer to this question. Clearly Dawo was pointing to something. So for Dido the choice of the words won't say implies that he understands something but he's withholding it, right? Which may seem to us to be cruel, like just give it you know, obviously he's in like great distress, tell him. Right? But the commentaries all speak of the teacher's great kindness in not explaining and in not giving an answer, right? To accepting that this might mean a breach in their relationship. He might get a beating, <laughs> something was gonna happen. And still he didn't say. So why? Why does Dawoo refuse to say alive or dead? So in Chinese Buddhism there is a compound word that came to mean alive dead. It's Sheng, sheng Si. I don't I don't know Chinese, so excuse me if i any of you do and I'm butchering it. Right? Alive dead. Alive dead, alive alive hyphen dead or just alive dead. Sheng is alive, si is dead, and then there's this compound that developed specifically in Zen Buddhism. And it was used to mean birth and death. And it was also used to mean samsara, the cycle of constantly becoming, constantly returning to the cycle of birth and death. And I found this out from a new translation and commentary on this collection of koans, and it turns out to be pretty close to Sojin Roshi's understanding of this question. He preferred to say not just alive or dead, but he spoke instead of birth and death. That is how he understood this koan. It's not about you know a, a body in the coffin and is it alive or is it dead. It's the question, our question of birth and death. And according to one translator of this koan, Katsuki Sakida, he says both life and death or birth and death are really concepts which are created by human beings, right? They are words which are merely compromises. There's nothing to understand, says Sakita. The corpse is just lying there. It's just a corpse. Which is not how we usually experience death. At least, (laughs) most of us. We feel the absence. My mother didn't open her eyes. We hold on. We wish it were otherwise. We create this simulacrum of the person at a moment that we prefer to remember them in, or sometimes we're relieved, right? Oh, their suffering is ended, we say. Our suffering has ended around our fear and worry about them. It all still points to our resistance to what is just there, right? which is beyond concepts and it's beyond explanation. Sekita goes on to say, from the essential standpoint, there is a world which does not change despite this teaching of the Buddha that everything changes, there is a world, says Sakita, which does not change, regardless of the unfolding of phenomena. Viewed in terms of that which lives from the beginningless past to the endless future, there is neither life nor death. And Sojin makes this point as well. As I said, he prefers not to talk about life or death, but about birth and death. And at the end of his talk, Sojin's talk, and again, just before he died, he said, birth and death are two sides of the coin of life. Within birth, there is death. Within death, there is birth. It can't be just one way. So we're fine with birth. Hooray! We love birth, but we have to understand that it is... uh, It is followed by death, not followed by in terms of time, but it's accompanied by death. Sojin says, every moment is a moment of birth. Every moment is a moment of death. Birth and death are the two dynamics of life. But life itself is still. Life doesn't change. Sakita says, this alive or dead is the same as being or not being. From the phenomenal standpoint, it's there. Appearances from the relative side of things. So this is another teaching about the relative reality that we all live in. There's death and there's birth. And then the absolute reality that's the background to these appearances. He says, from the phenomenal standpoint, it is there. Being or not being. But from another standpoint, there is nothing at all. Not a speck of cloud obstructing the view, as the commentary says. These two aspects of having or not having must be clearly grasped, together with the fact that they are intrinsically the same thing. (laughs) Dao is saying, I won't tell you, or rather, I cannot tell you. You must realize it for yourself. That's his great compassion, to let the student figure it out or realize it for himself. We could also say, to become intimate with it, with birth and death. There's a famous teaching in Zen, the kind of punchline is, not knowing is most intimate. So intimacy can mean not falling on one side or the other, right? not judging birth or death. Right? It's, it's not both, it's not neither. <laughs> we keep trying to pin it down with our words. Dido says, death misses it, life misses it, neither life nor death misses it, both life and death misses it. <laughs> it can't be captured in logical word games that we play, trying to chase what cannot be grasped with thoughts and words. So there's an alternate ending to this story. Right, so the story. So the core story is that eventually the student woke up later, 30 years later, with his teacher's successor. So sometime after he got the point of not saying, Jian Yuan, like he woke up, John Yuan took a, a spade or a hoe, some kind of garden tool like that, and he went into the zendo.
1: Like
2: I said, they really knew how to practice that. <laughs> and he went from east and crossed over to the west, right? And from the west, he crossed over to the east with his hoe. And Chishuang... The successor said, what are you doing? And Zhang Guan said, I'm searching for our old teacher's sacred bones. Right For Dao Wu's bones, his, his original teacher, whom he smacked or beat up and had to leave. Xixuan said, floods reach the horizon. Whitecaps drown the sky. What sort of teacher's sacred bones are you looking for? <laughs> and later on, uh, another figure in in, uh, Chinese Zen, Fu of Taiwan said, our teacher's sacred bones are still here. So what do you think this is pointing to? Now remember the student is not, this is more, he's some dramatic guy, right? Starts out by wrapping on a coffin, ends up with a hoe in the zendo. So how do you understand this little action of his? And the response then of Shishuang. Any takers? Mm. <laughs> Rich, sorry, conceive.
3: Oh, I just to say, his Buddha nature.
2: Yeah. What's the true self, right? Where is it? Where can it be found? Where are the bones of the of the teacher? Where are you, <laughs> right? What is the true self? Who are you really? Is what all of this is trying to point to. So Dido, I think, agrees with Sojin. Um, He says in his commentary, life and death are nothing but movement. It's like a flame that burns in the night, moment to moment. It's changing. It's different. It's not the same flame in every moment, but it's not another flame either. Who you are now, and who you were when you were three years old, is not the same. You don't look the same. You don't act the same, you don't think the same, you don't feel the same, and yet we think we're the same somehow. There's some essential me, and that is how we get caught. The Buddha said, this is Dido quoting Buddha, O bhikshu, O monk, every moment, every moment, you are born, decay and die. So we're born and we die, moment to moment to moment. That is the Buddhist perspective. Underlying everything is impermanence, constant change, a constant state of becoming, and also the stillness of life just doing what life does. So who you are yesterday, the day before, a year ago, five years ago, that's not who you are now, not physically, not mentally, not intellectually. There is not an atom or molecule in your body right now that is the same as it was five years ago. So Dido says, we are in dynamic equilibrium with the universe. He was a scientist, by the way, before he became a... He realized, he said, I was in the wrong profession. (laughs) This question of life and death for him could not be solved with science. But he still sometimes comes from that side. We are in dynamic equilibrium with the universe. The universe passes through us, he says. So what do you call the self? And what is John Ron calling the self? So he offers a little kind of capping home to this koan, Dido. He says, In arriving, not an atom is added. (laughs) Thus life is called the unborn. In departing, not a particle is lost. Thus death is called the unextinguished. And I want to close with Dogen, because Dogen is our guy. His final essay, the very last essay in the 95 essays that we call the Shobogenzo, Is called shoji, which we translate as birth and death. And actually, this turns out to be the Japanese pronunciation of shengsi, which I mentioned above, that compound that means alive dead. So Dogen also called it birth and death. Samsara, right? He called birth and death. This cyclic existence, which is sometimes considered to be a type of bondage driven by karma. So this fascicle is a half a page. (laughs) He summarized his understanding of birth and death with half a page. It's the shortest of his essays in the whole of his collected essays. And this is what Dogen says. He says, just understand that birth and death, right, shoji, birth and death, is itself nirvana, not samsara, nirvana. Dogen says, there is nothing such as birth and death, to be avoided. There is nothing, such as nirvana, to be sought. Only when you realize this are you free from birth and death. And he concludes, this birth and death is the life of Buddha, which is us. If you try to exclude it, you will lose the life of Buddha. If you cling to it, trying to remain in it you will also lose the life of Buddha and what remains will be the mere form of Buddha only when you don't dislike birth and death or long for them do you enter Buddha's mind however do not analyze or speak about it just set aside your body and mind forget about them and throw them into the house of Buddha. Then all is done by Buddha. When you follow this, you are free from birth and death and become a Buddha without effort or calculation. Who then continues to think? Thank you very much. Uh, Any comments, questions, objections? Mm -hmm. I got a question. Yes. So I've, I've heard a lot of Buddhist monks from the Mahayana tradition talk about how there's no soul because everything's impermanent. So how, with that in mind, and you know, everything changes. How, how is how can we look at that in relation to Buddha talking about all his past lives, especially like um, the one where I think that the that the enlightened teacher was Dipankara, where the teacher told Buddha that he would become Buddha, like, with many, many lives ahead. So, with that in mind, and also these, like, incredible, well-documented cases of young children
1: being able to recall past events and places, and, um, like, how, how, how do we reconcile that? <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> actually in the,
2: in the many commentaries that i looked at for this one of the i think it was Dido who said you know every single intro to buddhism this question arises and some of the teachings seem contradictory yeah. you know like uh, well there's you know what is it what is it if there's no self mm-hmm. no no individual consciousness that is reincarnated or punished or you know sent to hell or sent to heaven whatever then you know what is it about all these past lives and Buddha himself also didn't talk, he said, you know, speculating about what happens after death is not helpful in this life. So, like, put that aside, right, just live this life, which is a great kind of fudge, um, (laughs) even though he did, obviously, you know, there are all these stories about his past lives, and some of them are quite interesting, and that's that particular one where it seems like there's a prediction that's given, Right. right? Although, the way I think Dogen uh, talks about that, well, the way Zen talks about that is that prediction is given to all of us, mm. right? That we are all Buddha. <laughs> we, we are, we will all be Buddha. If we weren't Buddha in the past, we'll be Buddha in the future, without it necessarily being like you, your individual karma.
1: Because
2: right? even if you think about my karma, it's a delusion right there that it's me, it's, all, it's more of me, right? Mm. <laughs> my good deeds, my bad deeds, it's still all me. So, it's a huge topic, and the Tibetans have their very you know the 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 children who recognize the relics and the things that they owned, and and then it's like the reincarnation of whichever lama, you know, is a whole other variation on this theme. So, every teacher that I know and respect refuses to take a position on this, and I think I should follow their example. it's more like damn I know tell me you're gonna, I know I'm going to be assaulted when I leave the home <laughs> okay. but I think it's more like I don't know you know I can't explain why certain people remember past lives what you know they, they feel they remember past lives when I was quite a bit younger I read this uh, I think it was a Autobiography by Shirley McLean. I don't know if anybody, yeah. some of the, us older folks will remember this, in which he remembered, you know, past lives. And I was like, whoa, how freaky. And then I felt really inadequate that I couldn't remember my past life. <laughs> so I think, you know, a lot of us in Zen talk about karma as a kind of, not as an individual self that continues or is reincarnated or reborn in whatever form, but more a kind of direction of our intentional action that continues. And one thing I think about death that we don't know a lot about, because you know, somebody said, well you're a Zen master, you should know about death, and he said, I'm not a dead Zen master. <laughs> so uh, I'm not a dead Zen master um, yet. But I think that you know I do feel like that sense of the person, even when the person Is dead. We keep moving that line about when we think death really, quote, occurs. One of the hard things for me about the way we treat the dead in our culture mostly is, you know, we whisk them away, right? And they go straight to the morgue, you know, before they're even cold. (laughs) You know, the undertakers come and get them for us. And then they do what they do to make them look the way we're comfortable with them, usually. Right? That's often what happens. And so, you know, I didn't say this in the talk, but it, it... I have a little distress that I wasn't there when my mother passed, I was here. And my sister was handling everything, and, I, you know, and families do what they need to do. This has happened, happened also with my father. We attended to our living needs, to, to plan, to grieve. To, my mother died in Pennsylvania. We had to get her to New York and plan a, a funeral in a third place. And we did what is customarily done in our culture and in the Catholic religion. And, you know, I really hope that when I die, if I die, you know, somewhere where there are Buddhists, <laughs> that it won't whisk me away to the morgue right away and start messing with my body. In fact, I don't want to be embalmed. You know, I want to be cremated. And I hope people will chant with me, chant for me, with me, rather than... Because there is, you know, a dissolution that happens. And traditionally, we think it takes 49 days so, after 49 days, I will have a service here where it's, you know, the, the traditional thought is that person has moved through to whatever, they've, they've, they've left this form completely and this life completely. And their karma, whatever form it takes, continues. Yeah. So, not really answering your question, but keep asking it. <laughs> I won't hate you. No <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I need a bodyguard, obviously.
0: Yeah, alter. I think I've got to answer this, I won't say. Um, but how many of us, I mean, it's a practical thing, how many of us can remember when we were born? And if we can't, I can't.
1: <laughs> how can we fear death?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there are some extraordinary accounts of people who, see, who seem to remember being born. Hmm. I don't know if they really remember or if they have a strong imagination of what it was like to be born. And there are people who feel like they got to the brink of death and came back. And there are some similarities to those stories. And some, the medical profession, some people take the, the view that that's just kind of like a biological function, and that you know, if you don't die, you might have these, you might have these perceptions as you are dying. But if you don't die, you know, you'll remember them in a certain way. I can tell you that my greatest fear of death, actually, at this time, while I'm still relatively healthy, is uh, the mess I'm going to leave behind because my affairs are not in order, <laughs> you know, and what will happen to some people who depend on me. So living as simply as possible and kind of cleaning up after yourself before you die is maybe a good thing. I, I worry about things I've left, I will leave behind, undone and uncared for. That's my fear because I still think I have a lot of time left. Honestly, I do think, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm only this, you know, I'm coming up on a birthday and I'm thinking to myself, ah, that's, not, that's not so old, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: And then, you know, I could be hit by a bus on the way home now, right? So it can happen at any time. So living in the, free from the fear of death is, takes many forms, right? And probably I'm just stupid enough right now not to really be afraid of the end, but I'm more afraid of the consequences of the end, like, oh boy, what's gonna happen, you know. Uh, leave my my sister is my executor and she's now taking care of my mother's estate and we together took care of my father's estate when he died, and it's it was like a it's a lot, it's a lot, <laughs> you know, to leave somebody with in our in our world. Yeah, anyway. Clean up by act, that's my vow.
4: Yes, special. Sure. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, I was thinking of like Western philosophical tradition, like Hegel and even Heidegger. Their their belief is that their argument is that I think, therefore I am. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the way I have now got an impression of now the Buddhist approach towards this approach is like there is no I right and you said that in the end you said that that starts thinking so I was thinking of what would be your reflection on this like this Western philosophical tradition which is mostly like focused on I think therefore I am second was I was reading something on Nirvana Parinirvana and Mahaparinirvana So, when Buddha died, it was called Mahapari Nirvana. And you mentioned, like, being aware of death and birth itself is a Nirvana. So, yeah, how, what are these stages? Like, how would you distinguish between these three terms?
2: So, the first question is the, you know, the Western conceptual is the famous, you know, I think, therefore, I am, right? And I'd say, Buddhists would say, not so fast. (laughs) Yeah, we think because we're human, right? We have brains, we think. But that's not everything that we are. So thinking is included in being for us as human beings. But it's not... We we too much count on that and also on on our emotions and our memories as who we are. But it's like this much of... So when the the, the waves reach the sky... Where, where, where are our teachers' relics? And there's this great expression of you know m- mountains that can't be scaled and waves reach the sky, and it's like that's the that is the Buddha's body, and we are the Buddha's body. It's much bigger than this little thing that our cognitive you know selves. I'm not sure I understood your second question. You're talking about the parinirvana. Is that what you're telling us? Yeah, is, nirvana, parinirvana, and
4: mahaparinirvana. Is there a difference? I'm
2: I don't know, <laughs> honestly don't know. So the question is, you know, nirvana, which is considered to be, you know, reaching the other shore, the end of suffering, right? Dogen teaches is not any different than samsara or right here. It's no place to go. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere else to go. It's here, right? And it's like two sides of the same thing. It's a, it, and that shift in understanding what our life is is what we are here for. And then the Buddha... You know, had the experience. Of, we call it parinirvana, where he left this life and didn't come back. Right? He broke that cycle of samsara. He did not. There was no more becoming. And then the maha parinirvana, the third stage. You know, is yeah, the complete extinction. You could call it extinction. Is a is a word for you know breaking that cycle. It, it and it kind of sounds terrible to us, like extinction. It's a, it's a very loaded word for us. But it just means the end of this karma-fueled becoming. Right? So beyond that, I'm not, I can't say more right now. There was one other hand, I think. Ah, Charles, hello. Hello. Thank you for your talk. Thank you for being here.
0: I, I have a, had a comment. It's really a realization that I had during your talk which was, that uh, for many years, I always had trouble understanding co-ops. And I also had trouble, throughout my life, understanding poetry. And I've lugged around all these years since I was a student, this book by Robert Penn Warren called Understanding Poetry. And so now that I have a little bit more time, I thought, oh, now I can sit down and read this book and I'll, I'll understand poetry. But it turns out that understanding, the word understanding the way he uses it, he and his co-author, is not the way we tend to think with our uh, rational Western minds. Mm -hmm. It's more like experiencing poetry. And I realized while you were talking, that maybe this is a little bit the way it is with koans. They can't just be grasped with one part of our mind. It requires the totality, the affective mind, and and the emotional mind, all of that, to really, Mm -hmm. to not really, to really uh, take in the koan. But in terms of rational understanding, I think, in my case at least, that's, I so much want to, you know, there's a part of it that really wants to figure these things out and understand what the real, true meaning is, but uh, the rational rational way I've always tried to go about it doesn't really seem to work very well. And it also reminded me of a quote from Hamlet, you know, where he tells, I think it's Horatio says there's more mysteries in heaven and earth than in your philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, preparing, I'm prepared now better than I was when I was younger to live with these mysteries that can't really be fully grasped by my rational mind and to just let them seep in. And these stories that you, in the Blue Cliff Record, for instance, I take it were original oral tradition. Yeah. And so it's, it's the experience of hearing the story read that uh, is so important, not necessarily being able to grasp it uh, in a rational sort of way.
2: Yeah, we're still telling the stories. And, and sometimes the, you know, it seems like really mysterious what's going on, especially because you know, it's China. They're monks. You know, and the, sometimes the, the meaning of what may be going on is a little bit hidden from us by the fact that it, it's, Chinese, it's ancient Chinese culture. Right? with which we are not familiar, <laughs> and then we depend on translations. I do, you know. I mean, I, I know a few characters and I can sort of look things up, but I don't know classical Chinese. And uh, so I don't think it's really a problem because it's human experience. Right? We're still grappling with this question. We, all of us are still here trying to understand what is this life? How do we live? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? Right <laughs> Is it all just death? We're just all waiting to die? right? You know It feels that way sometimes. I think one more thing to say about the Chinese tradition is, you know Buddhism came into a tradition which was really kind of obsessed with ancestors, remembering them, um, keeping you know the, the kind of relationship of generations in, from one to the other, you know, which was a status thing as well, and so this, uh, this notion of birth-death being one thing kind of cut across that uh, very strong tendency to want to remember, right, to want to remember and celebrate. So uh, one way we kind of think about, is this person really dead or alive, is we remember them and we feel they're still alive. They are alive in us. But even that fades. Right? If you walk through an old cemetery, you see broken tombstones that are neglected and you know, moss-covered, and it's like there's no way, right? There's no way to fix that person in time. There's no way to keep them, and yet somehow, right? It's 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 fine. It's okay. They they are alive in a way that is beyond memory. It's beyond our consciousness, and it. We wouldn't, you know, you can think about ancestors going back to beginningless time. If we want to think in terms of science, the billions and billions of years and many, many lives of many forms of life. Without all of that, we wouldn't be here. So that's a rational way of looking at it. But there's some truth behind that too. It's just endless transformation. You You and and the trilobites are not separate. (laughs) Maybe that's enough for one day. (laughs) Please join us for tea and cookies if you have time.